You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Roosevelt Montas, who is a senior lecturer at Columbia University's Center for American Studies and also former head of the Columbia Center for Core Curriculum, which is, I think, a unique program, right? I have to talk about it for most of the program. But first, uh, welcome, Roosevelt. Thank you, Greg. It's a real pleasure to be here talking to you. Oh, I forgot to mention, of course, that you are the author of Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. You know, when I was applying to university back in the Stone Age, Columbia was on my list. And I think one of the main reasons why Columbia was on my list is because of the program that is sometimes referred to as the Great Books Program, for which it is is famous. And there used to be uh, kind of a lot of these programs at large universities, and they've kind of dwindled away. I think you can still go to a liberal arts college and, and get something similar to what Columbia offers. But the main research universities, which we think of as the crown jewels of the American university system, they've moved away from the liberal arts as one of the prime missions of their educational endeavor for a couple of reasons. And I talked to Tony Crumman about this. I guess number one is that the ideals of the research university, which go back to the 1880s, have just spread. And then also this idea that we, you know, we need to teach people how to make a living. So this kind of uh, vocational approach to education has taken over. It's kind of squeezed out the whole idea of the liberal arts. I think your book is sort of a plea to kind of bring it back or at least have yeah. universities take it seriously. But is there really any chance... <laughs> That universities will kind of re-embrace this mission? And if so, what, what are we going to have to do institutionally to, to kind of move the ball forward on this? Yeah. I mean, it's a complex question, obviously, that engages the whole landscape of American higher education. It's kind of bureaucratic structure, it's financial structure, the kind of marketplace of, of universities. So there isn't any single lever or single solution but one thing one can do is try to get clarity about what the issues at stake are. I suspect that the broad idea of liberal education, that is of allowing young people, you know, we think of as college-age people, although increasingly a, a, a large percentage of the college-attending population is not the traditional college age, but the idea that that part of a college education should involve reflecting on essentially the human condition and grappling with the existential, social, complex, political questions that structure our social life, structure our individuality, and have no clear kind of economic, professional, vocational import. That engaging those questions should be central to a college education. Getting clarity on that idea is important. And I suspect that that idea will continue to to have kind of purchase and relevance and popularity among a certain segment of the population. So what I worry about most is not the disappearance of liberal education or study of the great books, but it's return to a kind of elite, rarefied practice for the super privileged. Um, that seems to be a... a clear path towards which we're heading, and one that has, I think, very profound negative consequences in society. You know, there, I, I, don't, I don't have any kind of 
prescription of how do we turn universities around, except that having clarity about this mission of the university alone makes a huge difference. And and, I, and I've seen it just from my own work, the reaction to the book from a lot of outreach I did as director of the core at Columbia and continue to do, which is that there is a real hunger, both among faculty, among students, and among some administrators who care about this. There's a real hunger for this sort of education. And when you get an unalloyed, unabashed, assertive case for it, people want it. And we are, you know, there, there are two, two trends on kind of identifying higher education. One is a kind of a large mega trend that includes this bifurcation between elite and non-elite higher education. But there is a kind of micro trend, a smaller trend where many institutions, both liberal arts colleges, some large state schools, community colleges, religious schools with religious affiliations, there is a kind of turning back towards a more traditional approach to liberal education after a real kind of drift away from what liberal education used to be understood as. Well, I mean, there's two possible explanations here. I mean, one, in strategy, we say that strategy is defined by not just what you do, but what you don't do. And it's either intentional Mm -hmm. or unintentional. And so first we can talk about kind of what is a liberal education, what's the purpose of it, its disappearance or its marginalization could be a result of a intentional strategy. In other words, hey, this is not something that we really need to do anymore, or we don't think it's appropriate for us to do this. Or it could just sort of get pushed aside because of other priorities that have taken over. So which one is it? Do we, as a society, no longer think that people need to be inculcated into what it means to be a human being, do we kind of think, well, okay, this is just something that's obvious, right? You don't need to learn how to be a a human. You don't really need Mm -hmm. to learn about the truth. You don't really need to learn about what it means to be human. These things are just either illusions or they're, they're pointless or they kind of distract you from the real business of life. Is that sort of an intentional strategy or, or is it just that, Hey, look, you know, we need to, we need to develop the atomic bomb. We need to get new iPhones. We need to create yeah. people who can support themselves. And, and this sort of gets pushed off into the side. It's a very good question. And I uh, I think that there is a, a multiplicity of factors at work. Again, I, I don't think that one can point to one overarching single cause for what's been happening. But I, I find it useful to think about the challenges that, that have arisen and continue to operate and that account for the marginalization and and weakening of liberal education in in colleges and universities, I find it useful to think of these challenges as as one being a set of challenges that are outside challenges and one set that are inside challenges. And the outside challenges, you've pointed to some of them. There is a kind of increasing emphasis on the economic function of an education, right? The idea that education should be a a ladder of upward mobility, that education should be oriented towards the economic betterment of the students, that that education is an investment. And of course, part of what drives that thinking is the ridiculous price of education. The fact that an education is a major financial investment by a middle-class family. So there is an expectation 
that there will be a return, that, that this is a thing worth doing, and that is measured in dollars. That's part of the outside outside challenge, and of course, it comes in a, in a large cultural context, American capitalist, materialist, pragmatic orientation of the culture. So that those are, and one can specify further, but those are kind of outside challenges. Then there are inside challenges, and some of those have to do with developments within the university. The dominance, as you alluded to from your conversation with Tony Cronman, the dominance of the research model, the dominance of the idea that the purpose of the university is to investigate and generate and codify new knowledge, that the purpose of the university is is this cutting-edge discovery. And the humanities, the liberal arts are not about that. The humanities and the liberal arts are about human cultivation and, in fact, engaging with questions that are perennial, that are insistence, that iterate themselves over and over again and don't are not subject to final answers. You can't just do research and figure out what justice and love and mortality uh, are. So that there's a, a kind of institutional development there. There is a, a development within the humanities, kind of theoretical developments within the humanities that again you allude to, that question some of the fundamental concepts that are that, that must be in place in order for a liberal education to happen. You know, concepts like there is something like truth that we can approximate by intellectual inquiry. There is something like a good life. There is a hierarchy of values. There are things that are more beautiful and less beautiful. There are things that are compelling and there are things that are characteristic of human nature. There's a whole set of human values that must be in place or at least their possibility must be recognized to make sense out of liberal education and out of the humanities as well. Liberal education and the humanities sometimes can be used interchangeably, but they don't exactly coincide. So these are internal inside challenges to the academy. All of those are at play and interact in complex ways, and they frame this crisis moments that we're in. And I even use I use the word moment with some hesitation because the the liberal arts and the liberal education are in a sort of perm have always been in a kind of permanent state of crisis. But we are seeing a particular particular moment in that where indeed liberal arts colleges are closing down, departments are closing down, students are fleeing from majoring in the humanities and in the humanistic social sciences. Those are real empirical factors that that point to us being in a moment of particular crisis in the institutional instantiation of liberal education. Now, I wonder if you'd go back to the early days of the core. I mean, obviously you weren't around, but when Van Doren and uh, Jacques Barzan and Lionel Trilling, you know, I guess they weren't the ones that kicked it off. It was this guy named John Erskine, right? Who created the- Yeah, but, they're, 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 yeah, but they're, they're all together in a kind of intellectual mix. And all those names that you mentioned taught when Erskine, or Erskine, I'm not even sure how to pronounce it, I always see this name written, but when John Erskine or Erskine started his general honors course, when that course became the core, when that course became something that was required of all students at Columbia, then all of these people got involved and became both teachers and shapers of the program. So, I mean, when they did this, it was a political statement to some degree, right? It was about the idea that providing democratic access to what had previously been something reserved for for the elites. Columbia, I think, yeah. was probably much more integrationist than Harvard and, and Yale being kind of situated in in New York. I mean, I think I think a big part of yeah. it was essentially incorporating the, the big Jewish influx, right, into New York. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was 
That's right. Yeah. yeah. You know, the story that you describe about how when you're walking down this in front of your house and you found the Harvard classic, right? Socrates on the sidewalk. That story, it's, I think a lot of people can relate to that story, but I think that story is probably something that kind of what, this is what Trilling and Barzan had in mind, right? The idea that, yeah. that anybody from whatever their background could have access to this store of this intellectual thread that has permeated humanity since we started writing things down and thinking about stuff. Yeah, this is often missed, kind of popular conception of liberal education is something elitist or great books education, you know, and in education in the classics of literature and philosophy, it's often thought of as a kind of rarefied elite, something for the privilege or some, some kind of indulgent affect of, of privilege. And it's often missed that the their curricular implementation as general education is motivated by this democratizing impulse. It's motivated by the idea that um, this type of education is what is most appropriate for not an elite, but in a democratic society. So Colombia, for example, you, you alluded to it. In, in 1897, Colombia abolishes its Greek entrance requirement, which means that it begins to orient itself towards public school students, not the prep students who had Greek and Latin, a little over a decade later, it abolishes its Latin requirement as well. So you don't need Greek or Latin to enter Colombia, kind of completing its orientation towards the public schools, the non-prep classical schools, and also towards immigrants in New York. So Colombia is ahead of other Ivies in admitting Jewish students, although like other Ivies, it made some determined effort to screen out Jewish students, to maintain a controlled Jewish population. Colombia administrators worried about the so-called Colombia's Jewish problem and did many things that are embarrassing and shameful to exclude Jews. Even so, other Ivies did even worse. So Colombia has this orientation towards equipping non-elites, the non-traditional elite, with the tools of intellectual and cultural production that would make them effective democratic citizens of the American experiment. Another kind of signal of that democratizing impulse in liberal education was the Harvard report of 1945 called General Education in a Free Society, sometimes called the, the Red Book, in which Harvard Faculty Committee lays out what they take to be the essential kind of education for the general population in a democratic society. And what that report describes in 1945 is very much the Columbia program, even though they don't, they don't call it by name. It's very much this idea that, the, that a liberal education ought to equip the common person, the working person, the demos, the kind of brunt of the democratic population, equip them with the tools of deliberative self-governance. So that democratizing impulse is there from the beginning of liberal education, even in antiquity, it's there. And of course, one of the arguments I make in the book, and which I don't tire of making, is that our democracy today, the crisis of democracy 
in which we find ourselves is in some significant respect, in some significant way, the result of a failure of liberal education, of a failure of our education system, both at the primary, secondary level, but even at the higher education level, to equip a population for the complex task of self-governance in an information environment such as the one we have brought about by the digital revolution. Right. And you talk about your public school education, and it was very, very impressive. Both of my parents are, are from Queens. So you're describing this kind of an amazing public school experience, right? And this mentor of yours, Mr. Philippides. I think when most people think of public school education now, they're focused on these sort of standardized test results, and they're focused on getting people the basics. But I think you experienced something different, which was the provocation of, of curiosity, desire to, to discover knowledge beyond sort of passing tests and so forth. Do you think that it's important that people get exposed to this kind of thinking early on? I mean, in other words, your experience in university, do you think that the experience that you describe in the book was in any some way preordained both by the experience you had with your father, who was someone who was pursuing justice, and the experience that you had in high school. Do universities have to have good raw material right, coming in the front door in order for them to do the job of creating good citizens? I think they do. In some ways, higher education is a, always a kind of finishing school. And while I believe feel quite committed to the idea that, that higher education should be available, accessible, possible for every person. I also recognize that some people will not go to college, don't want to go to college, and that's fine. Therefore, it means that a kind of foundational liberal education has to be truly universal, has to be truly embedded and part of the universal school system that we have. And of course, in the United States, that, that's, K, that's K through 12. Interestingly, that book that I alluded to, The General Education in a Free Society, which is about the college curriculum ostensibly, spends an enormous amount of time thinking about the high school curriculum. So liberal education needs to be part of the K through 12 education. Now, there is something unique and special that happens in college and liberal education in college. And, you know, I talk a, a, a lot about that. That's in some sense my main concern as, a, as an intellectual, as a scholar, as a writer, as a teacher, what happens in college. But the what happens in the K through 12 space is even more, more important and more fundamental. You've alluded to the increasing reliance on a narrow standardized test as a measure of, of education. There's obviously an important place for testing. And part of that important place is this kind of democratizing thing where a standardized test allows an individual to display a certain kind of merit, a certain kind of capacity. And myself included, and many people I know, were kind of discovered, were kind of, they stood out because these tests identified that they had a, a kind of intellectual uh, capacity, heft, uh, that could be cultivated, that could be encouraged. So there is certainly a, a role for standardized testing. Standardized testing, however, because it's easy, because it's mechanical, because it's codifiable, because it can be administered cheaply in mass, has come to play a, a destructive role in curriculum and education. So that now too much 
of education becomes test prep. Too much of education becomes dictated by these very narrow funnels, these very narrow passages, you know, passageways, channels through which one demonstrates success and, and which denature the intellectual experience of not just high school, but any education. Testing, grading, if you just stand back from it, testing and grading are fundamentally destructive to the process of learning. And one has to use them sparingly as a kind of necessary evil. But what they have become in our school system is not a necessary evil, but the driving force of curricular and institutional organization in the K through 12 space, especially. I guess what I'm driving at is, you know, as an economist, we think in terms of supply and demand, right? So increasingly people are complaining about universities saying, hey, universities are treating the students as customers, catering to their wishes. But if that were true and the students wished for a liberal education, then, you know, would be providing it. So there has to be some kind of demand problem as well, right? Like, why is it that students don't show up at university and say, hey, you know, where's my Shakespeare class? Because I know when I showed up at university, you know, I looked around and I was like, wait, where, where's my, you know, where, where are my great books classes? And I had to kind of piece them together and kind of fabricate. And at one point I had to actually had to drop out of my PhD program for a year so that I could catch up on all the things that I felt like I wasn't learning. So why aren't parents sort of, I know that my mom's generated, my mom went to public school in, in, in Queens and and you know this was her aspiration, right? She wanted to become educated in this way. She was her father was an immigrant from from Ireland, and you know, she grew up in a relatively low income household. But she was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna learn classical music. I'm gonna learn you know literature. I'm gonna go to college, and I'm I'm gonna become this this person. She did become an engineer, but she was a very well read engineer and inculcated in her kids this desire for education. So is there a demand problem, right? Are, are kids showing up at the university and, and not, you know, insisting or demanding that they get kind of a liberal education? Your mom's example is an interesting one where she was a, as you describe her, a, a kind of broadly educated person who sought a kind of human cultivation, what used to be called refinement, you know, a, a kind of cultured education as culture, high culture, but who's an engineer, became an engineer. and that embodies, illustrates one of the issues in this kind of supply-demand problem that you're describing, which is that too often liberal education is presented as an alternative to a practical, marketable education. That is, you will either be an engineer or an art historian. And in a time of economic anxiety, what is the time that's not of economic anxiety? I don't know. But when universities are so costly, if you ask a young person or a family who is you know, taking out a second mortgage to send their kids to college, whether their kid should be an engineer or a lawyer or a physician or an art historian, it's obvious that they're going to say, no, look, there is a, there is a, a strong financial logic here dissuading, pushing away from liberal arts specialization. So this binary option where you will either study liberal education, study liberal arts, or study something that actually has a market value is part of the problem. What we need is liberal education for everybody. That is, liberal education should not be the major. Liberal education should be the foundation of every major. Now, if you do want to become an art historian or a literary scholar, as I did, decide to become, that's great. They should be open and encouraged, but the option should not be, the alternative should not be 
a liberal education or a practical education. So that's part of the problem that we have framed it in that way. The other part of the problem is that universities have not offered students true liberal education as part of their general education. That is, universities have catered on the one side to faculty specialization so that when you go to university, if you take an English class or a philosophy class or a history class, you are likely to get some very narrow specialized introduction to the discipline rather than some general engagement with the human questions that are at the bottom of a liberal uh, the liberal education experience, the, the kind of the condition of freedom, the humanities, those kind of broad general questions which are not disciplinary and which are often very profoundly engaged through something like the classics or great books, those courses are, are, are rare in colleges. So that what you have, what, what is offered to the student is not this kind of thriving, real, existentially relevant liberal education, but a series of disciplinary elaborations, which frankly are not of interest to most students. You're going to be an engineer, a lawyer, a businessman, a scientist. That level of specialized engagement with the questions of the scholarly humanities, the scholarly questions of the humanities are just not going to be of interest to you. And that is what most schools are offering students as their liberal education. Right. And of course, on the, the faculty side, right? So the faculty are, in many ways, the, the real customers right, of the university because they have to be yeah. kind of satisfied. And and no one advances their academic career by teaching sort of a right uh, a seminar class in the liberal arts, right? right? In fact, what, what department, you know, that's the other question. I think you raised this question is what department will liberal arts sit in? There is no liberal arts department, right? I mean, exactly. and exactly. if you... If you're an art historian, then the thing you're going to teach is how to be an art historian, right? You're basically teaching people to become, do what you do, which isn't necessarily what, and then I guess the concession would be, well, let's create a survey course and we'll have 600 people in the survey class and we'll just kind of, you know, which is not really that much, it's one step above kind of Coursera, right? And so I think you're arguing that just simply a list of Hey, here are the great works and that sort of thing. And hey, let's let's memorize what Socrates said. That's not going to do the job. But that's another reason why it's very very expensive to run these yes. small classes, right? It is it is expensive and labor intensive, resource intensive. But this should not surprise us. You know, education, the practice of human cultivation, is not a cost efficient operation. And you know, the idea that education should be cheap and efficient. I mean, we don't think that way about fine dining should be cheap and efficient. If you just need to get yourself the requisite number of calories to survive, then you do one thing. But if you are interested in a fine culinary experience, then cost and efficiency are necessarily secondary. Same thing happens with education. If you're interested in a quality education, then cost and efficiency are not going to be the driving concerns. And we have kind of fallen into this idea that education needs to be cost effective, that education needs to be somehow easy, cheap, and fast. And that that's just not, those are values that are fundamentally at odds with what education means. Now, of course, there are ways in which you can be wasteful. There are ways in which you can be unaccountable, etc. So obviously, but the values that drive education cannot be those of cost effectiveness and efficiency. We're talking about human cultivation. We're talking about values, quantities that have no price. 
the, the value of cultivating a human being, of equipping a human being with the tools, the resources for developing their full humanity. We're dealing with qualities that are not well monetized, that cannot, that, that really prices cannot be, cannot be put on them. I want to pick up on, on, on something that, that you mentioned about the kind of structure of the university, the disciplinary organization of the university. So universities are organized around departments, around disciplines, and those are the budget lines, those are the career lines, so that the departmental specialization has in fact squeezed out liberal education from the curriculum. As you put it, liberal educations don't have, they don't have a department. Liberal education is not disciplinary. So the structure of the university and of the academic profession creates a kind of inhospitable environment to liberal, to liberal education. So I remember my first encounter with Augustine was in a comparative literature class, right? And my first exposure, real deep exposure to Socrates was in a philosophy class, and my first deep exposure to Gandhi was in a, and Freud were in history classes, and you know Nietzsche was in sociology class, right? And so there, there was you know it's kind of all all over the place, but yeah. it requires a special kind of an instructor because they have to also be on the one hand successful research academics, but then also kind of these successful full teachers. And what I found is that all of the instructors that I had were were already tenured, right? And already, you know, successful in in their careers. And they didn't have to worry about kind of advancing through their careers. And so does that create a problem? I mean, I remember when I took Augustine with this professor, he was basically retired. And mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, all, all of these professors were sort of almost halfway out to pasture by the time they mm -hmm. were teaching. So do you have to, I mean, just like a student can be an engineer and study liberal arts, does a professor have to be able to continuously be a successful research academic and be able to teach these kinds of classes? Or does it make sense to do like, or practically, do we need to do a division of labor? I mean, you are a teaching academic. I'm a teaching academic, right? And so we don't have to do kind of revise and resubmits 24 hours a day. And that frees up time to kind of focus on students and focus on, yeah. on teaching. Is that really the only way we can practically expect to have, and of course that would require a dramatic reorganization of how we yes. kind of reward academics. Yeah, that's just it. That that kind of reorganization that would be required, the only, the only thing that motivates it, the only thing that justifies it is the quality of undergraduate education that is giving undergraduates a life transforming education. And that is not a priority in the higher education system. Um, just it's sad to say, but the higher education system does not prioritize undergraduate education, which is not about research. Undergraduate education, you, know, you don't need to be a world expert in the you know, second canto of the Divine Comedy to teach undergraduates. You don't need to be a, you know, an expert in quantum mechanics to teach undergraduates, yet it is that degree of expertise that is rewarded in the profession. So we have kind of yoked together two functions in the university, the function of research and investigation, which is extraordinarily valuable. I mean, there's there's no gainsaying, there's no diminishing the extraordinary importance of, of the research mission of the university. But we have yoked that 
with this other mission that has to do with teaching, that has to do with with mentoring, this kind of intensely personal, the best word is really cultivation. I've used it several times here. This really personal engagement with individuals at the kind of flowering of their adulthood. You compare teaching um, to psychotherapy, yeah. to being a psychotherapist. I thought that was- Yes, yeah, they're, yeah. right, right. They're very similar. So the Columbia core curriculum, which you, which you mentioned, very unique, extraordinary program. All of the thinkers you mentioned, Augustine in a comparative literature class and Nietzsche in a sociology class and who was it? Freud and Gandhi in a history class, etc. All of those thinkers I encountered in the core curriculum, which is not in our department. And of course, I had the same teacher teaching, and, and I teach those those texts. This, this same person teaches Freud and teaches Marx and teaches Augustine and, and, and teaches Plato and teaches Aristotle. So it it that kind of education that's non-departmental is the essence of liberal education. Liberal education is something that happens in between people. It's a intensely personal process, and it's one that is unconstrained by the categorization, the disciplinary by tree lines, the branching and specifications of scholarly treatments of knowledge as a whole. That's kind of the opposite of liberal education. Specialization is the opposite of liberal education, but the, sp the specialization is what dominates the profession. Now, is the answer to have a, a kind of a, a division of labor? To some extent, there's a danger in that and in that you can have a teaching faculty that doesn't have the prestige, the remuneration, the respect, the status in a university that the research faculty does. And then it becomes a kind of the, you know, like cleaning the stables or something. Teaching is what you do if you are a failed academic. So if one can, in fact, maintain those two, and there will be people who do both excellently, and those are the exception. Most people will do, it's a, you know, it's a kind of a zero-sum game for most people where the time and energy and dedication you put to research is going to be time and energy and dedication that you don't put to teaching and vice versa. There are those rare, rare souls that, that can do both, both well. But if we found ways to recognize and value both of those, then we should. The existing structures in the university don't seem conducive to that, to that simple kind of division. There's some law schools I know that make their faculty rotate through kind of the first year courses on a regular basis, right? Yeah. So, you know, you have to, every yeah. five years, you have to teach torts or, or contracts or, or property or civil procedure yeah. or something basic yeah. so that you don't kind of yeah. get too far removed from, you know, what might think of as a more comprehensive under, understanding of the law. Yeah, no, schools that really place undergraduate education at the center of their mission, and there are, and, and often there are programs within larger schools that have this undergraduate education as a center do that. And the results speak for themselves, the, for what it does for the faculty, what it does for the students. But as you said before, it's very labor intensive and the places where it exists now are the exception rather than the rule. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned somewhere that academics shy away from kind of normativity, right? And that the research ideal is one where you don't really take any kind of position on what constitutes the good life. And I'm wondering, you know, it seems to some extent that that's a futile ambition, right? That in some ways, there's always going to be some normativity in there. I mean, do you think that academics have successfully been able to kind of stay out of the fray? Or, or is it just that it's, you know, their, their normativity is more implicit, right? I mean, is not taking a position, taking a position, 
<laughs> right. Not taking a position is taking a position. You know, saying that there's no such thing as objective truth is to say that actually what is objectively true is that there is no such thing as objective truth. You can't escape having values and normative standards guide your activity as an intellectual, as a thinker, as a, as a researcher. Yet there is a kind of pervasive ethos, a pervasive culture that feigns or, or aspires at a kind of value neutral objectivity, especially in the humanities, that is a fool's errand. And the best we can do is to be aware, to be conscious of the values that we hold and to defend them rationally to whatever extent they are defensible. And in fact, that is what produces progress and intellectual growth, that you are you stand behind a position, you defend that position, and when that position is refuted or evidence is presented that forces you to change, then you change the position. But as long as you talk around values, as long as you refuse to assume a position, re refuse to make any falsifiable or refutable statements, then you're just playing a rhetorical game. And, and, and that is I'm a humanist and I'm in the humanities, so most of the scholarship I encounter is in the humanities, but but it's it, it's it's pervasive there. You get so many books and articles that 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 are just extraordinary displays of erudition, scholarship, rhetorical skill, mastery of literature that don't say anything, that don't assume a position that 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 cannot be you cannot extract a message, you cannot extract an argument, you cannot extract a position from them. And that's lamentable. And of course, I mean, I I think that it is one of the vices of the dominance of specialization and of the research ideal in the humanities, where the research ideal as, as it exists in the university is really modeled on scientific and empirical research where it does work very well, but it doesn't really translate into the humanities, but that's still the dominant paradigm in, in academic humanities. Now, of course, a lot of people would argue that the so-called kind of great books programs, which is sort of a nickname for liberal arts in some ways, it marginalizes some parts of the world. It's heavily focused on the thinkers of Mediterranean and later Northern Europe. And so it's not kind of representative of the folks that are coming into the university today. I mean, how do you respond to that? I know in your your book you respond to that, but but this seems to be something that a lot of people have to address when dealing to their students, because usually it's often students yeah. that will say this. I mean, in the United States, we have such a entrenched and barbarous history of exclusion and exploitation and oppression of minorities, you know, African Americans primarily, uh, but other, you know, women. And that, and of course, the women exclusion and exploitation is not is not particularly American, but other kinds of minorities that we are the students, the faculty, we are kind of alert to exclusion. We think of ourselves to the extent that we have progressed and overcome some of these some of these just terrible legacies. We are alert to to end those kinds of discriminatory exclusions. So it's natural that we would bring that kind of thinking to the curriculum. But of course, as with everything else, nuance is required there. So clearly the the past, especially the, the classical tradition, but even going into the Renaissance and into the Enlightenment is dominated by males. In the case of the Western tradition is 
obviously it's 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 European overwhelmingly it is elite that is it is the wealthy elite privileged classes that are that are writing and you know the, the, there is a so, so in some way the perspectives are class marked in ways that we should be alert to and examine and try to dismantle and, and understand that is kind of looking at the past and at, and at the intellectual textual inheritance that lies at our back through those kind of critical eyes is important is necessary is what we should do that is to be distinguished from jettisoning it for its lack of representation of our contemporary diversity and of the forms of diversity that we value today gender diversity socioeconomic diversity religious diversity obviously ethnic diversity racial diversity to jettison the tradition because it does not represent those forms of diversity that we value i simply shooting yourself in the foot and it is a kind of uh, a kind of a historical fanaticism a kind of blindness um so we have to apply some nuance there you know today certainly when we are organizing a general education curriculum and we get to the latter half of the 19th century, the 20th century, especially the second half of the 20th century, the post-World War II period, then you have absolute diversity there in all of the dimensions that matter to us. And we, any, I think any fair-minded curriculum focused on the post-World War II period is going to be a diverse curriculum. But we cannot ahistorically apply that standard of selection, that criteria to the past, to antiquity. The past, we can change the way we understand it, but we can't actually change it. The historical record, the evidentiary record, the textual tradition that is there is what is there. And it reflects the distribution of power and access to literacy and knowledge. Uh, now we do make new discoveries, we do emphasize different things. And again, that is that is the normal an appropriate process of scholarship and and development. But the idea that we should demand the kind of global or even local representativeness of the canon or the classics, it just apples and oranges. It doesn't make sense. And, and I should say that people often conflate the representation of ethnic and socioeconomic diversity with global representation. I mean, there is great value in looking at the ancient traditions that are non-Western. And I think that, that a general liberal education should include those those kind of world classics. It doesn't need to be only Western. But the Western tradition in America, in Europe, in Latin America has a special relevance. The history of the institutions, of the language, of the politics, of the religion, of the aesthetics, that history has has been evolved in a particular kind of loosely geographical, not, ex not not rigorously, but loosely geographical region. So that tradition deserves special attention in societies that have emerged from, from it. Just like contemporary Japanese or Chinese or Indian university, their liberal education will give special emphasis to the traditions and the sources that, that have fed and from which their contemporary social organizations have emerged. That makes perfect sense. Now, you do a lot of work with high schoolers, and I want to hear about this, because what's that experience like when you introduce them to, say, Socrates, right? Are they like, oh, man, who is this old, bald, non-Christian Greek dude, right? I mean, what, what, what's that experience like? I mean, do it's, they... It's, it's a, yeah, it's my favorite thing that I just start... I'm starting next week. So next week, I start my program for high school students where I bring into a class 15 low-income, first-generation, 
college aspirants. I do this with two other colleagues, so we end up we have forty five students all together. And what they're reading this week that we'll begin to talk about next week is the the trial and death of Socrates, the dialogues that record the last days of Socrates. It's extraordinary to see young people become awakened to kind of some of the deep questions that that they might have intuited or that they think about in their own way or that they see playing out in society, but to encounter some of the sources of those questions, to see them grappling seriously, intently with philosophical questions of the highest order, to see them realize that Plato and Aristotle and Thucydides and Locke and Hobbes are not beyond them. They're not figures of kind of exalted, rarefied, exclusive thoughts, but that in fact they are asking questions and dealing with issues that matter to the students and about which the students are competent judges. Uh, I always say, think about what it means for a 17-year-old to disagree with Aristotle. That's extraordinary, that introducing them to that kind of dimension of their own mind and of their own status as intellectuals and thinkers. Uh, again, it's my favorite, it's the favorite thing I do as a, as a teacher, and I'm absolutely brimming with excitement to start doing it again uh, in just a week. Well, when you describe your college days, you know, you began as part of this, what, H-E-O-P program, right? Higher Education, mm -hmm. what was it, Opportunity Program? Opportunity Program. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I thought it was interesting that you said that at the beginning, it was obvious kind of who was part of this program, but by the time you got to yeah. year two or three, it, it was not obvious at all. I mean, that seems like a very yeah. successful kind of program if that's, yeah. I mean, some would say that's actually not successful, right? That by assimilating people into this broader community, that's in some way extinguishing some element of their identity. Do, yeah. do you have to kind of give up yeah. some part of your identity to grow as a person to? You do. To grow intellectually, you have to give up superstition and you have to give up ignorance and you have to give up narrowness of thinking and prejudice. These are good things to to eliminate and not just from people who are like historically marginalized, uh, but just from anybody. That's that's part of what education is. So, you know, assimilation is a, is a, is a tricky thing. Assimilation might mean compromising who you are and abandoning your traditions and your, and your cultural wealth, et cetera. Or assimilation can mean facility with the tools of broader communication, competence and fluidity in the idioms that are by which you can reach the largest audience and through which the largest audience communicates. In every society, especially in a democratic society, there is a kind of public sphere. There is a kind of a sphere of wider communication and transaction and exchange. And competence in that wider sphere is... Uh, part of the price of effective citizenship. It doesn't mean giving up your own kind of more private, more local, more idiosyncratic culture and, and idioms and norms. I'm, I'm Dominican and I you know, have aspects of myself that are kind of very narrow, culturally specific with, with which I communicate with my family, with some of my friends that we kind of enjoy and love. And there's something extraordinarily rich and satisfying about that. And then I, there's another part of me that writes an article for a journal. 
And there's a part of me that makes a speech at an academic conference. And there's a part of me that writes an op-ed for a daily newspaper. And I can navigate all of those different registers. And that capacity to navigate all those different registers is part of what education is. It's part of assimilation into the broader culture. So, you know, assimilation can be a, an ugly word and an ugly process. But in another way, it is the absolute requirement for life in a diverse democratic society. Now, you mentioned that your profession is, is amateurism, right? And I had a conversation about Montaigne a couple months ago with another guest, and the idea that you could be a professional- Just reading right before- <laughs> The idea you could be a professional amateur, right? I mean, uh, can you get a PhD in this? Obviously, you can't. You kind of slipped into a PhD program almost, yeah. you know, almost by accident. And I certainly struggled with the PhD imperative to kind of specialize, specialize, specialize. And I fought yeah. it and tried to stay in grad school as long as possible and kept switching subjects and so forth. But can you make that a profession? Can you can you become a professional amateur? I mean, how can you make a living at it? It used to be the province of the leisured classes, right? You know, you had to be an aristocrat right. to sort of live a life where you, you could pursue truth and so forth. Is yeah. And yet yeah. today we have more prosperity than we've ever had in a way pretty much everybody can afford to be some kind of aristocrat relative to yeah. what we had to do back in the 16th century. So are we squandering this? I mean, we, we have this, I mean, Keynes are predicted that we were going to be working four hours a day and uh, we'd spend the rest of the time, you know, on leisure. And I think his, I don't know what his, you know, Bloomsbury vision of, of leisure. Some people think leisure just means watching television, but you know, we have this ability, we have enough resources, I think, to, live a life where yeah. we can enjoy leisure in the best sense of the word. And it seems right. like we're not doing it. How do we, yeah. how do we yeah. promote that? We have fallen into kind of an efficiency trap where we produce more in order to equip ourselves to produce more. That is the, the, the payoff seems to be more material capacity to produce material capacity. And that, that, you know, it's something that it's encouraged by the culture, obviously, by the, the equation of success with affluence. What Keynes didn't calculate is that our desires, our needs would be augmented along with our affluence. So that ultimately there is a kind of psychological education, a kind of psychological growth and development that has to be in place in order to make the material affluence count towards leisure. You need to have a system of priorities that puts that, that prioritizes, that values leisure. What is leisure? You know, leisure is, is, is not, the Greek, I love the Greek, the Greek word for leisure is skolai, which is where we get school from. It is the kind of cultivation the kind of sometimes rigorous, sometimes very intense, sometimes very demanding activity that you do for the pleasure of it, for the love of it, not without an instrumental end in view, but simply because you value it for its own sake. That's leisure activity. You know, part of what a liberal education does is, is educate you in leisure activity. That is educate, educate you in the rigorous pursuit of self, cultivation, self-knowledge for its own sake, not for the sake, not for its, in, its instrumental value, but for 
its intrinsic value. When I was applying to graduate school, I made what turned out to be a wise decision that since I did not didn't want to specialize. I didn't want, I wasn't driven into graduate school because there was one burning issue that I wanted to be of the world expert in. I was interested in graduate school because I wanted to be keep learning, because I wanted to keep pursuing my curiosities, because I wanted to keep voraciously and as don't put Don't as put that possible. in your app. Don't put that in your application. <laughs> <laughs> well, I almost didn't get into graduate school because precisely because of that. And English turned out to be a good place because English has undergone a kind of epistemological crisis where English doesn't know what it's about now in the English discipline. And this happens in the humanities. You can do almost anything. And I had studied literary theory pretty intensely as an undergraduate, enough to know that if I didn't know what to do and I wanted to leave all my as many options open as possible, English was the place to go. And so that's what I did. I did a PhD in English. I did have to specialize to some extent, and I did, you know, specialize in something that matters to me, that I find intellectually exciting. I, I studied 19th century American political thought and American culture. I still teach that stuff. I love it. But I also wanted a context in which I could just pursue questions that mattered to me, and whether those were in American questions or whether they were philosophical questions or questions that ancient writers explore, religious writers explore, et cetera. I hoped and to some extent found a way to make a living just being a generalist, just reading and writing and thinking about questions that matter to me by virtue of my, my, my humanity and that I think matters matter to others by virtue of their humanity. Well, you quote Du Bois where he says, there's learning how to earn your meat and then learning you know, what you're nourishing with your meat. I remember I went to two undergraduate commencements back to back and one, uh, there was a Nobel Prize winner in medicine who gave a speech on how we're extending life and through modern science. And I think that was very, very well received. And then the next year it was uh, Ricardo Muti and he was kind of talking about, well, what, what good is life, right? What, do you, you know, what are you alive for? And I noticed that the audience was much less comfortable with the second commencement address than with the first one, right? I noticed a, a a lot of kind of discomfort and people saying, hey, wait, this is, we didn't come here to be, uh, you know, lectured at in this way. You know, maybe the critical school is correct and that we are manipulated unconsciously and maybe by forces that are beyond our conscience. And it seems like the liberal education is really the best defense, right? It's the thing that yeah. makes us aware of the forces around us, which are leading us to just pursue a life of constant ambition and material success. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's something about our moment as a species where we are countenancing what that commencement speaker talked about, the uh, extension, possibly radical extension of the human lifespan, uh, an environment that is um, on its way to, to, to catastrophic um, decline for, of, of the conditions for, for human thriving. Um, advances in artificial intelligence that are making us rethink what, what, what it means to be human. We are in a moment in human history where the questions that preoccupy the humanities and liberal education have a, a unique urgency that facility with the kind of introspection and uh, rootedness in human values that the humanities foster are absolutely um, essential to navigate the landscape in front of us. I pray and I not only pray, but work towards 
that kind of education that equips an individual to to engage the reality rooted in, in human values and self-reflectively, that that be not something that is rare and for the few, but that is as widely accessible to everyone as, as is absolutely possible. Well, Rosal, thanks so much for joining me. We didn't even get to talk about Augustine or Freud or Gandhi or, or you know, really any of the great books. So we'll have to save that for another day. There's a lot to say about those. Yes. Yeah. So I highly recommend this. Learn about how Augustine turned you into a, an atheist, right? <laughs> Which is, you know, that's pretty impressive. And lots of other great stuff in this book. So please check it out. Uh, Rescuing Socrates. Thank you so much. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.